We wish to acknowledge the traditional caretakers of the land we record this podcast on, the Yuggera people and their continued connection to the land and waterways of Yuggera country. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Hi, I'm Libby Trickett. This is All That Glitters, a podcast where I sit down with the world's best retired athletes and explore the transition from the bright lights of competition to the real world. On today's show, I sit down with former NRL player Dave Shillington. Oh, great Go tackle. Shillington takes them on. David Shillington. And it is an old rooster up against one of the young chooks. Dave, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. It's such a pleasure to be able to interview you. I've had the honour of working with you for a couple of years-ish. Yeah. Give or take. What is time anyway? (laughs) Um, You do incredible work in the mental health space and it's, yeah, it's been really great to be able to deliver some of those messages with you at different events. But first things first, you are a former NRL player. You played for the Broncos. Nope. Gold Coast Titans. Gold Coast Titans. NRL Roosters. NRL Roosters. God. I'm nailing this. I'll I'll give you a hand. I'll give you a hand. Thank (laughs) you. It's like I've not done this before. And I kind of want to know, I mean, you're a big dude. Obviously, you look like you're made to kind of hit people (laughs) or like tackle them. Legally. Legally. Obviously. Obviously legally. (laughs) How did you get into footy? Yeah, I was really lucky enough to play uh, for 12 seasons in, in the NRL, uh, Sydney Roosters, Canberra Raiders and Gold Coast Titans. So it feels weird to say that because when I was a kid, it was never something that I thought was viable mm. or I wasn't really that interested in, to be honest. I, I loved playing rugby league and I had three brothers that all played as well. I uh, loved playing with my mates and having fun, mm. uh, but not necessarily like this is what I do as a job ever. Because at that age, like when you were younger, it wasn't really – a professional league at that stage or was it just starting to look yeah, that way? It just started switching when I was about 13 or 14 years old. And I actually remember at the time, cause this is like 1996, 1997. Uh, and I had a younger brother three years younger than me. And we were, we were reading the news on the in newspapers or watching the news online and on TV back then, I guess. And it talked about that rugby league had gone professional then mm. and the players just trained full time, played full time. And that's all they did. And I remember talking to my younger brother going, hey, can you believe there's people out there that just play footy as a job? Like that's all they do and they get paid for it? That is hilarious. Imagine doing that. Uh, but still nothing I ever aspired to do or thought was possible uh, because, you know, whilst they end up you know, developing my skill and becoming a good footballer, I, I wasn't necessarily like a teenage sensation or that junior superstar you see around the fields or anything like that. I was a very modest average player, to be, to be quite honest. Uh, but then, yeah, as I had a, bit, a couple of growth spurts and um, grew into my body, I guess, uh, I started to become a better player and it all started to become a reality after a while. Mm. I love that you're like, I was a fairly modest average player. <laughs> you're like, you know, just went on to play for the Maroons in Australia, <laughs> but that's cool. <laughs> no, I mean, in my teen, teen years, I was very modest. And I like actually talking about that because sometimes when I go to schools or junior sporting clubs, I let them know that, uh, look, if you're not necessarily a gun right now that scores Mm. 10 tries a game, don't think that you can't do this if that's what you want to do because clubs recruit all types of players. Yeah. Yeah, Look, the wingers that might score 10 tries, but also the the front rowers that want to work hard. The the locks in the second rowers that do a lot of the, I guess, uh, less pretty work, but, um, but it's vital for any team to succeed. So 
Uh, like I tell them, just to just to keep following your dream, your passion. If you want to, you'll have growth spurts at different ages, mm. and you don't need to be a star right now. It's actually a really important point because I think, I mean, particularly in swimming, like a lot of the athletes are very young when they start to break onto the Australian scene. And I was a late developer at 18. Mm. <laughs> like yep. I was considered a late bloomer. Yeah. Um, so it's actually really nice to hear that you weren't a gun from a really young age. I also like, I guess, I'm not jealous and envious, but I did put some of those other young players who were making all the rep teams back then on a pedestal. Mm. And I used to watch them going, I reckon one day you guys are going to play in the NRL. You're already guns now, so it makes sense that you will be when you're older. But the reality turned out to be that uh, none of those guys really, I mean, a few of course, but not many of them actually went on to play in the NRL and they were just um, teenage stars in the end, which is great, you know, don't get me wrong. But as a young person, you sort of put yourself behind them and mm. below them uh, because you're not good at like an early developer, I guess. So I, I love talking about that to young people. Um, don't get knocked around if you missed out on a rep team or you're not the fastest kid in the class yet. Uh, but just keep trying if that's what you want to do. But that again, that is so fascinating because I, I mean, I had the same experience. You know, it was all the Sarah Bowds and the Amy Townsends and the Melanie Houghtons and the Candace Bloody Rogers, who was always the best swimmer at my school yep. <laughs> until she left my school, and then I became the best one. Thank goodness. <laughs> but yeah, you kind of imagine that they're the ones who are going to go on to make the Australian team, and you know. Someone I can mention is Liesl Jones. She was training 10 sessions a week at the age of 10 and, yes, won, won a silver medal at the Olympics at 15. But they're, they're the exception. Like that's not the rule for everybody. Oh, there will always be those sort of freak of natures, those incredible talents that are incredible at 10 years old and 15 and 20 mm. and, and beyond for sure. I remember I did make a little sort of representative team when I was in under 11s and 12s and Jonathan Thurston was actually in that team <laughs> back then. JT. Yep, yep. And he, he kind of disappeared a little bit through those mid-teens years and then resurfaced again when we were about sort of 18, 19. We, we played representative football again for the Junior mm. Kangaroos. Uh, so both of us, yeah, we kind of were okay around the year uh, under 11, under 12 mark, both sort of went you know, a bit by the wayside a little bit in his mid-teens and then came back on strong when we were late teens. So, look, yeah, everyone develops at different times. And, and I love talking to young kids as well. I mean, like, young as in 10, 12 years old and telling them about, I guess, my physical development over yeah. those years. Because up until the age of 14, I was actually, you know, a really short, small sort of player, person. That's what's so fascinating about yeah. the way men develop is it's so different. Yeah. And I, I reckon I was... Um, five foot eight to five foot 10 uh, up until about the age of 14, probably weighed about you know, 75, 80 kilos. And then by the time I was probably 17, 18, I was six foot four, six foot five, 105 kilos. Wow. And, uh, so I kind of say to the kids, that could be you one day. And all these yes. little scrawny kids look at me going, mm, maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe that could be me. Yeah. Maybe. So because of the way that your body developed, does that then influence the position that you then play? Absolutely. And I talk about it candidly, but it's kind of true in that when I was that smaller, scrawnier kid, I was uh, I was a lock, so packed into the back of the scrum. And as I got a bit taller and a bit slower, I moved into the second row <laughs> in the middle of the scrum there. And I got a bit taller, a bit heavier, a bit slower again and became a front rower. Uh, so I was a front rower probably from the age of 19, 20 onwards. Mm. When I was about 26, 27, 
being a front rower in the NRL had taken its toll on me. I was like saying to the coach, can you put me back to the second row, please? I need a break. Mm. But um, I was already too slow and uh, <laughs> too big by then. He goes, mate, you are confined to the front row for the rest of your career. You're like, that's hurtful. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> like literally I'm getting hurt here. <laughs> I actually want, because I've heard you tell this story and it's, I reckon it's just my favourite thing because I've, I've had – you know, everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people do watch like a state of origin and there's this uh, amazing anticipation of the, of the kickoff. And like, I've come from swimming. I'm like, don't touch me. I want to be in a lane by myself. The, (laughs) the temperature of the water needs to be 27 degrees. (laughs) I am a precious athlete. (laughs) Do not touch me. And being an NRL star, like you're putting your body into direct physical contact. Like that's kind of the aim of the game, right? And especially being a front rower. Yep. And it's that first kickoff at the start of a game. Can you tell me the story? Because I I absolutely love this story. Yeah. Oh, look, I'm actually one that thrives on, um, you know, getting energy from other people, music, and just trying to be happy. I get energy from that rather than trying to act serious and focused and mm. all those sorts of things. So, um, yeah, I like to get the music happening, the chat, have a laugh, not muck around, of course, but um, get energy from that. And, and I know running out for, uh, for Origin, uh, I knew that the worst thing I could do was try and get my serious head on and get caught up in my own head of what could happen or what mm. should happen or anything like that. I just wanted to be happy and, and be energised. And I was standing there in the kickoff area. Um, so for those who don't follow the rugby league, of course, uh, the Blues will kick off to us as a front rower. I'd be in our own in-goal area, waiting for them to kick downfield, the halfback would catch it, pass it to me, and I'll run it back for that first run of the game. And I remember what I used to think back about was when I was a kid, as in like you know, 8, 10 years old, 12 years old, uh, my three brothers and I would sit in front of the TV on origin night, like a good 10, 20 minutes before the kickoff. So we didn't miss that kickoff. Of course. All talking about, man, could you imagine taking that run, that first run in state of origin? That's like the, the pinnacle of playing rugby league. It doesn't get any more tougher than that. Mm. There's no more bigger responsibility, I guess, than that. The energy to, in that moment yeah. is like palpable. Yeah. And for any of your listeners that have been to a state of origin game, you can imagine you can't hear anything. Uh, particularly if it's Suncorp here and there's all 50,000 redneck Queenslanders (laughs) screaming at you, which I say affectionately. Me being one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, the atmosphere is huge. The pressure is enormous. But I think back to at that time I thought back to, you know, what young kids are parking themselves in front of the TV Mm. going, look at this run, look at this responsibility, how exciting. And uh, and that really helped me get the energy up and, and and enjoy the experience too. You enjoyed running and getting hit. It's counterintuitive, I know. You should be like running away from them, right? But uh, I always remember uh, the the weird thing about Origin sometimes is when it's mate versus mate as well. Mm. And so I played it in Canberra, and there's a lot of New South Wales people down there, of course, and. One of my good mates at Canberra was Tom Leroy Lars, and a lot of listeners remember him as just a, he's a giant, right? Mm. He played second row and front row for the Raiders and for the Blues and for Australia. Uh, we were best of mates in Canberra, uh, always go for coffee and hang out and uh, pretty inseparable. Uh, but then I got picked for the Maroons, he got picked for the Blues, and all of a sudden we have to be enemies, right? <laughs> Try and smash each other. All of a literally. sudden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> or at least for that 90 minutes. And uh the years that I played, thankfully, we're always beating the Blues and this game was no different. We're about you know, two or three tries up at this stage and we scored again and the Blues started getting pretty dirty and the captain was giving them a big mouthful trying to rev them up going, all right, now we're going to kick off to the right 
Whoever catches it from their team, I want you to take their head off. All right, Tom? You got it, Tom? <laughs> Tom's like, all right, you're kicking off to the right. Whoever catches it, I'm going to take the head off. I've got it. And uh, he jogged back to the halfway line, uh, getting set for the kickoff, and he looked down to the right, or our bottom left-hand corner of the field, and there I was standing. Oh, waiting no. For the ball. And he's like, uh-oh, Shiloh's going to catch the ball, but I've got a responsibility to take his head off. I've got to take his head off. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so I caught the ball. And I started angling back towards the middle of the field before I looked up. And I just saw these three or four Blues players just like steam coming out of their nose and their mouth, just wanting blood. And thankfully, they were running so fast because they were so keen that I just changed angles a little bit to straighten up a little bit. And most of them ran straight past me. So <laughs> I survived to tell the story, essentially. I, I wasn't sure if I was going to survive. But just, I love that. You, yeah. you in your front row, slow <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I've got this. <laughs> I was never going to outrun them, so I'd outsmart them. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and thankfully, on that occasion, it worked. No, oh, that's amazing. Because <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I think that for me is the most confronting thing about NRL is just that, I mean, it's contact. It's a contact sport. Yep. And you prepare your bodies every day at training to kind of withstand that. It's a weird thing, yeah. And it's something you just get used to. And, and fans sometimes ask you, doesn't it hurt those big collisions? And the honest truth is rarely, rarely mm. do you actually feel any sort of pain with it. And that's not pretending you're tough or anything. but The um, adrenaline, I guess, is right up yep, there. Adrenaline's up, so that reduces the pain. But then all your muscles as well just become hardened and just thick-boned and thick-headed sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually an interesting thing because I had a massage therapist who used to do work with the Broncos. Yep. And then they would come and massage the, the swimmers and they're like, oh, you're so supple and soft. <laughs> Yeah. And then they're like, we have elbows going into our footy players and they're still like, oh, you can go harder. Yeah. Well, I um, I struggled with a lot of injuries in the start of my career mm. and I was constantly tearing my hamstrings. And it just turns out my hips, my pelvis was all out of whack. Uh, and I saw a physio like every day for two years, but just had this reoccurring problem. Thankfully, just on a whim, someone suggested I see this person uh, who's an osteopath ah. down um, in Cronulla. And uh, her name's Kay McPherson. Shout out to Kay. She's, um, I think she could be retired now, but uh, absolute lifesaver when it came to fixing my body and, and, you know, I guess maintaining my career. I saw her for about three weeks, I reckon, twice a week. And uh, I never tore my hamstrings again since. Wow. Because her technique was unorthodox <laughs> in that she would climb up on the table and drive her knees and elbows into my hip flexors, my adductors, uh, everywhere around all those little sensitive spots. Uh, with her full body weight, and I'd be like squirming under her going, it's okay, keep I going. I am fine. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it totally worked. And she used to talk about working on swimmers too and the difference in like that muscle density yeah. and toughness for sure. It's yeah. fascinating. Mm. It's so fascinating. And you can kind of see like, yes, part of it you develop over time and through training, but also partly it's your genetic makeup and what you're yeah. built to do. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, those um, Pacific Islander players, for example, like those guys are 16, 18 years old and built like 30-year-old men. Mm. Uh, but for, for the rest of us, um, you know, we develop into that body uh, and front rowers generally around 25 to 30 start sort of, I guess, toughening up and having that proper front rowers body oh, you have. Oh, interesting. So you see a lot of front rowers sort of like blossom in their careers in their late 20s, early 30s because they finally got that hardened body that they need. But then do you have – a lot of longevity in that body. Well, it's because it's, obviously you're taking knocks constantly as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's changed over the years in a, in a very good way. Uh, in that, 
when I was 18 and moved to the Roosters, all the front rollers at the time, like Shane Webke, were retiring at, say, 28, 30 years old. Mm. And so I looked at my career lifespan as being about 10 years in okay. duration. That was my prediction, I guess, based on precedence. Uh, but then thankfully, while I was playing in those early years, sports science just improved so much. Mm. Every year there was new stuff coming out around recovery, um, prehab as well, so getting your body ready to train so you don't have as many injuries. All this information started coming out. And then during my career, guys started retiring at 35, 36, 37. So like mm. Petro, um, Darren Lockyer, Steve Price, those sorts of players just played on to the late 30s. Uh, so that paved the way for the rest of us to do that too. I was 34 in my last year, which is um, which is a great knock. I selfishly wanted to play a couple more years. But thanks to sports science and um, taking care of yourself, uh, we got way more years out of, our, out of ourselves than we used to have got. So, mm. yeah. So when it came to making that decision, I mean, you mentioned that you would have liked to have played a little bit longer. What was the decision-making process around your retirement? It was so tough. Uh, so I played seven years in Canberra prior to moving to the Gold Coast Titans. And in my last couple of years, like I was playing good footy. It wasn't still an origin type player, I guess, that standard, but I was still playing good footy, holding my own on the field. Uh, when I went to the Titans, unfortunately, I just had this horrific string of uh, injuries mm. and I kept busting my shoulder and tearing my pec and uh, all different things like that. And just the reoccurrence, the reoccurring injuries in the same spot just made all the muscles sort of waste away in my shoulder. Wow. And so that any sort of new collision that was a little bit awkward, something would go wrong essentially. Which is like every collision in <laughs> <Yeah>. footy. <laughs> well, that's the point is that I, I – you toy with the idea to go, well, if I just strapped it heavily and mm. try to use my left shoulder more than my right shoulder. But as you just said, you can't do that on a yeah. football field at, at a high level. Uh, so I did think about going overseas and playing in the Super League, which is mm. generally considered like a bit of a level down from the NRL, but still a you know, good standard, of course. And and still owning capacity and yeah. all those sorts of things, yep. which you have to take into consideration. Yep, for sure. And there's always the added benefit when you go to the Super League. Yeah, you're not going there for a holiday, but in your holidays you can travel around. Correct. There, of yes. Course. So that's a huge, huge benefit. I spoke to about maybe four or five different English Super League clubs and uh, and got a few offers from them of like one years, two years sort of deals. And I remember speaking to one of their head coaches over there, and I said, "Oh, look, I'd come if you gave me a three year deal." Mm. And he said, "Oh, look, to be honest, Dave." We've given a couple of Aussie players three-year deals and they come over here, they're injured, worn out, and we have to pay them out the rest of their contract after one year. So it's, it hasn't been a success for us. And that conversation just really hit home, I guess. Yeah. And I went, you know what? I'm not, well, one, uprooting my family. I had two kids by then to go and move overseas and play overseas. Uh, mm. But then I'm not going to do that to the club either who's trying to invest in me and plan around me to be one of their, their, their star players and then just sit on the sidelines for the rest of the year. Yeah. Because I'd already sat on the sidelines heaps prior to that and it's a terrible, terrible feeling. Uh, so I just went, you know what, I'm going to quit while I'm ahead sort of. Yeah. <laughs> quit while I'm ahead and uh, and hang up the boots. Yeah. How did that feel though? Because it's, it's, a, it's one thing to go, look, logically I don't want to do that. Yeah. But then emotionally that must feel a bit shit. <laughs> It is. It's a whirlwind of emotions. And to be, I guess, more specific is there's like excitement. Yeah. That, Anticipation. Um, yeah. It's like, what's next? Because in the back end of your career, you get so injured and worn out, you kind of get excited about retirement. And so, like, that's got to be much better than yeah, this. <laughs> yeah. Like, I won't be sore every single day. Mm. Uh, but, and I won't have that pressure every single day. So there's a bit of excitement in there. 
a bit of uncertainty as well. Like, will you survive in the real world? Yeah. And we could talk about that, of course, um, yeah. more. We've spoken about it before, you and I. Yeah. But then, interestingly, what I found interesting anyway, or surprising, was it, there's a little bit of resentment too as well. Yeah. Where you, when you're an actual player, you get you know, the head knocks, the shoulder recos, um, you ruin your body in a way. Absolutely. But you 100% take it as part of the job. Ooh. Well, me personally and most of the people I know, probably not everyone, but generally speaking, you 100% take it as part of the job and you go, oh, well, my shoulder's busted. I'll just have surgery. It'll never work again in the same capacity. <laughs> It'll never work again. But <laughs> that's my job. <laughs> yeah. And it honestly feels that normal. But then when you retire, you go, actually, I'm only 34 years old and this is just uh, – minuscule tiny part of my life yes i've got two kids that have recently been born they're only young uh, one and three i've got to live the rest of my life and be a dad for them and earn, yeah. earn income and things like that so this little bit of resentment uh, sort of kicks in and goes oh i feel um i feel that people criticize you for saying this but was it actually all worth it yes and because there'd be so many fans like one-eyed passionate fans there that they go yeah, you're being an NRL player. You're playing for the Maroons. Yeah. Whatever it takes, just do it. Loads just of people it. who maybe didn't quite make it or would have yeah. loved to have made it. Yeah. But then the reality of having 10 rounds of major surgery, umpteen knockouts and whatever it might be, mm. and it's starting again in life, mm. uh, the reality of that is very different when you live it, particularly when the, the footy career is over and then you've got to enter the real world and use your body, use your brain, use yeah. your skills, you know. So there's just a, a splash of resentment in there that I, I did get over, absolutely. Like I don't feel that anymore. But um, but actually chatting to other players who've retired, they've had similar feelings Absolutely. Well. So, yeah. Absolutely. Like to think about what you've put your body through mm. over the better part of a decade or about a decade. Yep. Like that's – unbelievable sacrifice in a lot of ways for your team and for your country yep. and for your state. Yep. And then, I mean, I'm interested to understand what that transition is like in terms of the support that you get. Mm. Did you feel that you were pretty well supported in terms of that emotional side or did it completely take you by surprise? Uh, well, actually probably around the time I retired was when it was about the time the NRL started ramping up the support they give players. Okay. So I was the beneficiary of, the, I guess, the early sort of efforts to support players retiring. And actually probably backdate a little bit. When you're about 28-ish, mm. they, there's a career transition officer that goes around a few different clubs and they tap you on the shoulder and they go, <laughs> hey, Dave. It's probably um, coming up to it. <laughs> it's not the grey hairs that gave it away. It's actually your age that you probably will retire at some stage in the next one to five years. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, get away from me, lady. <laughs> I do not want to talk to you. I'm never retiring. <laughs> uh, well, that is how you feel. Yeah, absolutely. But unfortunately, it's inevitable. You have to retire. And that could be as early as next week mm. or it could be in five years if you're really lucky to. Uh, so you do have conversations around retiring a little bit, but it's more so should I start studying now if I'm not already to plan to get a job after footy? Mm. That was that was more the focus. Um, fast forward to when I did retire and they launched a program called Play On where they do, uh, at the time it was a two-day workshop, but I think it's increased to maybe five-day workshop now amongst other things mm. where they get all the retiring players in on grand final week and they have different workshops uh, including like lived experience stories from recent and retired players uh, to prepare them for what life's going to be like for them mm. in the next weeks, months, years. Uh, because when I say years, they tell you stuff like 
you know, in, the, in your first five years of retiring, you might have five to seven different jobs you'll try. Uh, <laughs> yes, so, it's so true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so just things like that you need to be prepared for. So one, you don't feel like a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and two, you can just kind of enjoy the ride, enjoy the experience more than worrying about stuff and feeling uncertain. Yeah, you're kind of like, oh, well, this this is normal. Yeah, yeah. It's actually normal to try this many jobs. Yep. Yep, and then there's other realities too that whilst this might sound obvious, I mean, everyone in the world's guilty of things like this, that uh, you're going to come off a fairly significant salary. Yes. And have a real world salary. Yes. And so are you prepared with your mortgage, your car repayments? Maybe you have to buy a car for the first time because you've already had a club sponsor car all your career. Do you have the right health insurance in place because the club's always provided this for you? Yes. Things like that. Practical um, things. Yeah. Yep. And so like in my last year playing compared to when I got my first full-time job, Mm. I went from like 300 grand a year to 65,000 a year. So that's a huge, huge shift. So thankfully for me, you're talking about emotional support and even the things we're just talking about then, the practical things. I've got three brothers, mum and dad, we're all very close that um, supported me enormously. Mm. So they're all like little mentors for me away in different ways. Uh, so I was never one that was, I guess, um, unprepared for retirement. Essentially, even though it was a little bit earlier than I wanted, yeah, I was always, um, I was always prepared and supported to reinvent myself, I guess, or get back on my feet, uh, whatever was required. Were you surprised though? Like, even though you had all the support, you had kind of some tools and resources. Were you surprised at how you felt in that transition, or was that kind of again to be expected? Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing you and I have spoken about before, which was I think is a big part of retiring, is um, identity. Yeah. And, and what I mean by that, some people sort of go, oh, yeah, so like because you're famous, you get all this adulation from <laughs> yes. everyone. Is that what you mean? I was like, no, it's actually not what I mean. Uh, That's not the thing. Yeah. And to probably explain it more is when I retired from footy, my dad retired from um, the workforce as a 60-year-old, right? So How funny that you're retiring at the same time. I know, yeah, different <laughs> yeah, capacities. but uh, And we kind of both experienced similar things mm. around identity in that people are known. So you're known to people because of your job in a way. Absolutely. And he had a pretty you know good job that um, people knew him for. And we both came from those work environments where it was like, the boys, the mates, the routine, the physical component to it and things like that, that you're leaving, the boys, the mates, the routine, the Mm. physical component. And you also had a job, yeah, that paid all the bills and paid well and uh, it was enjoyable. So when you you leave those things, you feel like a huge part of you leaves as well Mm. and you have to change identities and be introduced as a new person, literally like that. Literally a new person, yeah. Make new friends, social circles, routines. Um, find enjoyment out of things that's not your job mm. as well. So, uh, yeah, I think that change in identity was big for me, but I see the parallels for people retiring at 60, getting made redundant at 50, getting divorced at whatever age, yeah. losing a loved one at whatever age, moving countries as a as a newly arrived migrant, you know. So mm. there's lots of parallels around identity, I think, that's big for people. Well, and I think it, it's – I spent a really long time in my retirement desperately wanting a label mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> like because I was Libby Trick at the swimmer yep. you were Dave the NRL player mm-hmm. and you just want to be able to succinctly say what you're doing now yeah yeah <laughs> and you don't have that because it's like oh I'm kind of doing a marketing and sales role for a technology company and then I'm kind of I'm also kind of doing this 
mm. in media. And then I'm also kind of like starting the podcast. One of, I reckon one of the reasons was so I could just go, I'm a podcaster. It's <laughs> a cool job too. That's a cool job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Look how fancy I am. I'm a podcaster. Yeah, yeah. Did you have that same thing? Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, you know when you fill out like surveys or, sorry, like induction forms or... Well, like immigration forms, like if you're travelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you see a new doctor and they want to know things about you. They always have like occupation. What's your occupation? And forever we used to write sports person. Yeah. And then we started being fancy and writing athlete after that. <laughs> yeah, uh, like everyone, athlete. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but then retiring you can't write former athlete, right? Because they'd be like... <laughs> Yeah, this guy you have to actually be someone now. How's this know? guy? Yeah. <laughs> what is he, who does he yeah. think he is? Yeah. Uh, so you can't say that. You have to say who you are now, what you do. And knowing that your identity has always been tied to your profession, mm. it's weird and you're unsure what to write then moving forward. And so my first job out of the game, I was a project officer for the NRL. That was my title. Uh, so for those occupation forms, I'd write project officer, which is just really weird. Yeah, that feels weird. And then. I was in that job for about three months and there was this mental health awareness day in Coffs Harbour and I went down there and there was all young people, older people, all families at this um, local rugby league game that they turned into a big mental health gala day. And I went down, I thought as the, or I did go down as the project officer for the NRL. But then this lady who was like my chaperone of the day, lovely lady, she didn't know how she was confusing me all day, but she did in that she would introduce me to all these young kids all day and that she'd go, Hey, kids, come and say hello to Dave Shillington. He's an NRL front rower. And they'd go, oh, wow, you're an NRL front rower. That's awesome. And I went, yeah, yeah, oh, uh, not really. Uh, 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 no, I'm not actually. <laughs> how do I explain this? <laughs> yeah, excuse me. And, and uh, it was just really weird. And they must have thought I was a bit of a drongo, to be honest. Uh, but then the next group, she'd say, this is Dave Shillington, an NRL player. The kids would go, wow, you're an NRL player. And i go, well, uh I, I used to be, but I'm not anymore. And, and it wasn't like hard for me to say, but I was just so used to it. Yeah. I was used to my interactions with people uh, being like that, where they just continuously ask you questions about NRL, of course, and you talk about that and that's who you are, what you do, what you talk about. Well, that's it's a conversation starter. Yeah, and that's not a bad thing. But obviously that wasn't me anymore. So uh, I remember driving home from that event going, wow, so not like – trying to be corny but like who am I now how do I introduce myself how do I talk <laughs> about I? myself yeah <laughs> so uh that, that was a huge eye-opener for me of how mm. much I had my profession my job tied into how, how I viewed myself and who I who I thought I was what has led you because you you've started a business prime effect yep. which delivers mental health um strategies yep. and kind of information resources tools yep. what has led you to kind of getting into the mental health space Oh, so many things. Uh, and I'll try to jump around all over the place. But first of all, like in rugby league, we saw this huge shift in how we viewed mental health. Mm. It was a huge shift. And you can imagine back in 02 when I moved down to the Roosters, 30 big, strong blokes prided themselves on their physical health, physical mm. appearance, physical fitness. If you talked about like your emotional well-being, not coping very well today, uh, you get laughed out of the change rooms. Yeah. You get ridiculed. Well, I mean, from starting from being a little boy, it's like, don't cry. Boys yeah. don't cry. Yeah. Yep. Uh, always just, you know, be tough, bulletproof, get on with it. Mm. And that was, and that was the world too. It wasn't just rugby league, of course. But then fast forward to the back end of my career and that view on mental health had changed enormously. Part of that was uh, we can thank uh, sports science for mm. because all these different sort of your training day, your routine would be guided by the latest in sports science. And a very broad example might be, 20 years ago, they used to do lots of road runs yes. and to get fit. 
And then sports science told us that, well, actually the short, sharp, high intensity stuff will get you more fit faster. So um, basically like that's how a training schedule adjusts over time. Yeah, it becomes more specific to your particular sport and your particular position, I imagine, that's as right. well. That's right. And when those papers get released, those academic papers, the clubs pick it up, read it, and they all start doing the same thing essentially. Uh, thankfully, but around 2014, 15, uh, the science started getting released that if we recovered uh, emotionally faster, then we'd recover physically faster as well. Really? Yeah. So the emphasis for recovery sessions was not just on those physical components like ice baths, stretching, massage, swimming, but on emotional recovery too. What? So that we could speed up the physical recovery. And That's amazing. Yeah. So, and it, it's two part in that we would do guided meditation, for example, during the day. Uh, at the Titans High Performance Centre. Like before competition or after? So the day is sort of split into two days with your training schedule typically in that you'll do a big field session in the morning. So you'll be out in the field running, jumping, passing, competing for like two and a half hours roughly. Then you'll have recovery, a break, and then come back in the afternoon to do weights and video and cross training. So we do guided meditation in the middle of the day to reset, decompress, re-energize and get ready for the second half of the day. And let me tell you, it was a bit of a um, bit of an uproar when um, <laughs> it controversial when we saw meditation <laughs> on the schedule. I uh, cannot imagine thirty big burly <laughs> footy blokes lying down and doing some meditation. <laughs> oh, it was it was quite funny, but I, I love love highlighting that because look, we picked up our schedules and saw guided meditation and went, oh, "What's this about? Come on, seriously, people, what are we doing at twelve? We're not, We're not pansies, yeah." <laughs> but we went into a room and. Uh, they're trying to dim the lights. We closed our eyes, uh, laying on our back, and uh, they're trying to press play on a guided meditation. We did that for about 10 minutes. And at the start, the few boys cracked jokes and thought it was hilarious. But um, by the end of it, everyone relaxed into it, enjoyed it. And we walked out of there going, actually, that was pretty good. <laughs> I yeah. feel a bit better to take on the second half of the day. And so there's that component that you feel better to take on the second half of the day. But then most of us, including myself, took it home to our personal lives mm. and I've always been one that sort of my brain just lights up thinking about everything all the time and mm. a lot of anxiety about different things, trying to, you know, unpack scenarios that might happen, could happen, should happen like that. And so for me, guided meditation was wonderful before bed where I can just focus on my breath, slow down my heart rate, brain activity mm. through breathing and get a better night's sleep. So you can see how that would improve performance, right? Of course, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was a real game changer for us that we started incorporating that into our professional training schedules, but also our personal lives too. Mm. I'm fascinated. Like, I mean, I think it's so cool what athletes can then start to incorporate because of performance. Mm. And do you think you would have been open to it had it not been introduced to you in that kind of environment? Look, I, I'll be doubtful, yeah, doubtful, because everything we did was based around performance. Yeah, how do we incrementally get better? Yeah, so we would look at what we're doing on the training paddock, of course. Mm. Uh, then we'd look at what we're doing in our recovery sessions to set us up to be on the training pack more, longer, uh, more sustainably. And then you look at things like food, supplements, sleep, mm. uh, just even what you're doing on your day off as well. Yeah. Always just trying to keep improving, get the edge somehow, I guess. So, yeah, look, if meditation didn't provide any benefits like that, I probably would have just ignored it and kept kept moving, you know. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, it's wonderful that it showed those performance benefits and it makes complete sense in hindsight uh, and it became a mainstay in our training program and, yeah, personal life. Do you feel like 
and, you know, tell me if this is too personal, but do you feel like, you know, you spoke about kind of having an anxious brain and like it just whirs and is moving. Do you feel like that kind of set you up to be a great athlete in a way? Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, the getting some good strategies like that was a huge game changer across the whole NRL. I know the AFL did it too. And we saw different uh, well-being, performance, you know, uh, different workshops, you know, one, two, three times per year from different uh, providers. Mm. But uh, when we started getting these sort of workshops around gratitude, mindfulness, uh, amongst other things, it was a game changer. Mm. The whole NRL just went, this is what we needed. We need, we, we have needed this so badly mm. uh, because what it does is it teaches you healthy strategies to be able to calm down or, or feel more energetic as well. However, you're trying to adjust your mood, healthy strategies rather than unhealthy ones, yeah. uh, you know, like drugs, alcohol, porn, gaming, yeah. uh, gambling, whatever it might be, things that provide that temporary release and you're like, oh, I feel better from it. But then after that temporary release, things are probably worse for you. Yeah. Not, and you need more better. and more to yeah. get that hit. Yeah. So giving us these healthy strategies was a huge game changer for, for everyone, including myself. And I know like over the years, being able to get better at those things as well gave me more returns because when you first start doing things like gratitude and mindfulness, personally, I, I, I thought it was a good thing. But as you get better and better at it, I feel like it becomes more of a weapon for you, I guess. Yeah. So with meditation, for example, um, that helps with focus Yeah, because I am a bit of a scatterbrain from time to time and I'll be like, I'm going to do this and then this and then I'm going to do that then and so yeah. on and I'm all over the shop. And guided meditation has helped me with, with focus for sure. Mm. But then for sleep has been amazing. Mm. And throughout different parts of my career, if I didn't have these tools, maybe I wouldn't have you know, reach the heights or the longevity that I did have in my career for sure. But then even like way beyond my career last night, I listened to this 10 minute guided meditation, my favorite one. I listened to that twice in a row uh, mm. before I fell asleep. So just having those tools rather than a, a sleeping tablet or insomnia uh, is, has been wonderful. Yeah. And I think it's so great to have someone like you talk about that. Like you're a big burly dude who talks about gratitude and mindfulness and meditation and it's like, yeah, we can use that. We can use that in terms of performance. Mm. Hell yeah. Like I think most people are on board with something like that. But yep. like, hey, it actually helps me sleep as well. Well, I think of it almost purely for about performance. Yeah. And that's just my old sporting background. Yeah, 100%. In that like all those things I was saying with sports science before, that was all designed, geared, utilised to help us perform better. Yeah. So – if we were doing uh, sand hills, running sand hills at Wanda down in Cronulla, it was taxing. Uh, but we knew that jumping in the ocean, the cold ocean for a good swim was important. We knew getting the right nutrition after it was important and, and so on and so on so that we could come back Monday morning or the next week, whatever it is, the next Crush it. and be fitter and stronger. Yes. And we could perform at a higher level, which is rewarding, satisfying and so on. So now for work, for business, uh, I've got that you – know, entrenched into me that I want to perform and you know, achieve, right? So I want to do things that can downregulate stress and allow me to uh, yes. work at a higher level. So that, that's how I think about it. But that's, that, that's what I find. Well, when I first kind of went into work, like in a corporate environment, I just would see people like flogging their bodies, like mm. in unhealthy ways, you know, yep. whether it's working too many hours or – 
not sleeping and it's kind of like this badge of honour. It's like, mm. oh, yeah, we went out all night and then we came here in the morning and then – and you just go – Sure, you might be able to do that for a short period of time. Everyone can probably do that for a short period of time. But you've got yep. decades left of your life to live and is that – it's not sustainable and it's not conducive to actual genuine performance over the long term. That's a good point because an ironic thing or a, a thing to highlight about people who don't sleep much and they're tired all the time or they take on too much and they're – I have five coffees down. and an energy drink yep. and that's – yeah, woo. Yeah. <laughs> the science actually tells us, well, one, performance suffers enormously mm. where you can't focus properly, you can't concentrate, you can't make decisions, you can't work at the speed you're supposed to. But two, you don't actually realise it. Mm. So the people who are tired and in that sort of zone of delusion where they're not thinking straight but they wear as a badge of honour and keep pushing through, they don't actually realise how much their performance has dropped off because they've um, readjusted and normalized these feelings. Mm. And um, I've just found by working with individuals and groups, if you point out exactly what it does feel like to be performing your best, when you're in the flow state, life's effortless, they're like, oh, that's actually not me right now. I thought I was tough and charging on. Just grinding it out. Yeah, and they didn't actually realize that they've readjusted to a much lower level of performance than they should be having. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And it's like... There are moments in life where you do kind of have to grind it out, totally get it, that is necessary, yep. but it shouldn't be the norm. Yeah, and, and I always find talking about mental health, mental fitness, sort of logical to people when I you compare it to men, uh, physical health and physical mm. fitness. And we are just talking about training before, and you would have done this in swimming, of course, many times. You push yourself beyond your limits mm. and then you recover and your body adapts to that, mm. those physical adaptations uh, from that stress to be a higher performing machine, whether that's you're stronger, fitter, you're faster, whatever it might be. And so I see mental health, mental fitness in the same way in that, yes, push yourself. We're not talking about, you know, sitting on the couch all day and doing nothing. Gosh, no, that sounds boring. You can push yourself (laughs) to achieve whatever you want, but definitely have the strategies and definitely value the strategies to pull back that stress uh, to decompress, unwind after big days, big down regulate, so that you rest. come back bigger and stronger as Correct. your body adapts. I, I think of the my workload I have at the moment for my business, and think of what uh, the workload I had when I first retired from playing. Yeah, the workload in the office, and I remember sitting in the office watching that clock on the wall going <laughs> eleven a.m., twelve, one. How early can I leave without like raising alarm bells, red flags around the place where someone's going to notice that I'm gone? Yeah. I reckon it's three o'clock. I could definitely go at three and no one will say anything. But now, like not saying I'm wonderful or anything, but comparatively I'm a machine working like all day and, yes. I, and I love it because I've developed the ability to do that and the strategies. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. I did the same thing when I was in the office. I'd be like, oh. Okay, I think I have to get to five because apparently that's when everybody yeah, yeah, leaves. Yeah. And even that sometimes is too early, especially yeah. in tech, like in the tech world, it's like you have to work all the hours and it's just like, oh, okay, yeah. but I don't actually know what I'm doing. So I'm just like sitting there pretending to shuffle papers yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I do find myself in similar styles to the old uh, NRL training programs where I would like to work in one, two, three hour blocks, then yes. have a break. And work another one, two, three hour block, have a break. I wonder if that's just how we've developed over time because I'm the same. Yeah. And I think it's effective too because once again, talking about physical health, physical fitness, if we ran around all day, 
doing this and that, you know, we're going to get tired. And yeah. if we don't have a break, we're going to collapse into a sweaty mess and Correct. not be able to do anything. Yeah. Uh, so it's the same with our mental health, our mental capacity as well, that if we are working at a high level, that's straining for us, stressing for us, testing our capacity, then we need to have a break so we can reset, process things, calm down, and then go again when we're ready. But society is not set up like that. Well, yeah. I mean, workplaces. Like, I mean, they're starting to talk about it more, but yeah. like in terms of actually structurally how offices are work like yeah. structured. I think working from home, hopefully it's more conducive to what we're talking about. Yeah. Although I do know, including myself, some people struggle to switch off from what's home life and what's work life. Yeah. Leaky uh, boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, hopefully people do have more breaks and even if that's just putting on a load of washing. Yeah. But then obviously don't confuse, you know, this is my kids time, family time, yeah. sleep time with uh, actually I'm just working the whole time. Yeah. This is something that I'm interested in, only partly because NRLW is starting to become big and, you know, I want my girls to be able to have access to whatever sport they want. Yep. And you've got a young son and a young daughter who, yep. Yep. you know, could potentially take up whatever they want to take up. How do you feel about that contact sport and head knocks and all of that conversation around the impact on then your mental health in mm. life after? Oh, look, it's a very, very tough one. I try not to be this overcautious parent. Yeah. But also not um, put my blinkers on as well. Yeah, you right? don't want to stick your head in the sand. Yeah, yeah. So things have things keep changing for me, so it's hard to make a permanent decision on things. Mm. Where when I first retired and had that bit of resentment around all yeah. the injuries and the head knocks, I thought to myself, well, I'm t certainly not going to push my son into playing football or my daughter. Mm. But then the game started changing a fair bit too over that time where the shoulder charges were, were banned completely. You know, spear tackles, punching, all those yeah. things that were sort of a bit loose, I guess, with the game were outlawed and stamped down hard on. Yeah, and all those head assessments and yep. all that sort of yep. stuff has come into play. Yep, so they brought in the HIA uh, rule for people, if they have a bit of a head knock, they have to go off and get assessed to make mm. sure they're not too um, impacted by it. So th th those great changes, M much necessary, much overdue. But then this, like last year, and any of your listeners who are big NRL fans will have noticed this, it seems like all the head knocks have just been ramping up again, even with all these new rules. So that, I mean, that's what I was actually going to touch on because, and, and I hate saying this because it feels terrible, but I haven't been watching that much NRL recently, but I did watch the State of Origin this year mm. and it was bloody exciting. Yeah. Partly because they were fighting and yeah. being rough and like scrapping and like punching on and I'm like, why am I – because it reminds me of my youth and it reminds me of like how exciting football was yeah, back yeah. in the day. And I'm like, as a parent now, I'm like, this isn't okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, the game has changed slowly alongside society. Yes. You know, years ago they started calling the um, the king hit a cow, cow punch, punch right? yeah. And coming down hard on that. And so rugby league had to change too. We don't be stuck in the stone ages. So that is good. But, yeah, this year – it's just every every rugby league fan, every former player, current player, of course, has noticed these head knocks reappearing frequently. Why do you think that and, is? Well, going back to sports science, like the whole aim of sports science is to go help the players be faster, uh, more agile, um, yes. bigger as well, um, to be a bigger player but still run just as fast and move just as fast. Uh, so, like when I when I started playing in o two o three uh, full time, uh, all the players were really big. And so I bulked up from like 105 kilos to 115 kilos wow. in about six months and because you had to be big. 
Then they started limiting the interchange and only a certain amount of players could come off the bench each game, which meant players had to play for longer periods of time. Mm. So all the players started shrinking. I was around 108 kilos then, so I lost about six or six or eight kilos. But then uh, sports science kicks in again, and we find out these new ways to train harder and longer and better and uh, recover better. Yep, yep. And we we're able to bulk back up to like 115, 116. But still run. Still run just as fast for just as long, move at the same agility. And that happened over like years each time, of not course, just yeah. overnight, of course. But um, so that's what sports science does. And so where the game's in a predicament at the moment, I believe, is players are so big, so strong and fast and can mm. move. The the game sped up a lot. And it's so fast nowadays. Yeah. And for rugby league fanatics listening, they'll know that uh, there's been a, like a six again rule for a while, the last two years, which the aim of that was to speed up the game. So there's less mm. wrestle in the ruck. The game wasn't as slow. And that was really exciting for the first year or two. There's more tries, more action uh, as a fan. But now the players are bigger and faster and stronger and that rules around too. That there's just all these weird collisions happening all the time because this is there's a scramble out in the field. Whereas it's less structured, less set play like. There's more of a scramble, like a free for all in the field with a six to go rule. Uh, which means there's just lots of random collisions and you, you notice it the most, where, where it's a problem for the game is, one, of course, player well-being. Of course, yeah. Um, but aside from that, as a business model, I guess, in answering your question about you know, kids playing footy, yeah. as a business model, it's hard for the NRL because where you notice those head knocks the most as a fan was in origin mm. when the stakes are high and if one or two players get ruled out for the rest of the game, that can um, cause a different result in the game. Absolutely. But then we also notice in the final series too where the Rabbitohs play the Roosters, um, three or four players, including James Tedesco, for example, left the field. and Yeah, there were so many. Yeah, that kind of decided the game in a bit or heavily influenced it. And so where it became a bad business model for the NRL is these major games might be decided and were probably decided by head knocks. Mm. So, uh, look, if they're in a bit of a predicament. I'm not sure what they're going to do. Uh, but what I will probably round out all that comment with is – the NRL is not junior footy, mm. and we make a point of saying that uh, as a junior rugby league coach myself is that what you see in, on the TV, they train all day, every day, and they're yeah. 10 years older than you, 20 years older than you to be able to perform at that level. And they're making adult decisions yep. with their yep. choices. Adult yep. decisions, they've got full-time doctors, full-time physios, mm. full-time strength conditioning coaches. That's not you guys. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> That's um, not what you guys do in junior rugby. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, unfortunately, when we were players, uh, we used to scoff at this when people, you know, tag you as role models and so mm. on. It's like, hey, man, I'm just playing footy. I never signed up to be a role model. <laughs> <laughs> but, and they used to tell you things like this, but you didn't believe it until you retire and start coaching junior rugby league. Mm. This happens, right? Whatever happens in the NRL week to week, the junior players that weekend mimic it. So if, there is, if there is like a scuffle or a spear tackle <gasps> or whatever goes on in the NRL – there'll be like dozens and dozens of those same actions in junior footy. Wow. Um, they, try and, they try and mimic their stars they see on TV and probably also get a bit of a green light if something like that goes on. So, yeah, when we're players, we're like, that's their responsibility. Yeah, but that's then, up to them. <laughs> yeah, but then you see it with your own eyes and you're like, ooh, the players are role models. they got to do the right wow. thing. <sighs> okay, I take back everything I said. It was a terrible thing that there were scuffles <laughs> in the state of origin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But, yeah, it is funny. My son, uh, yeah, so he's seven, loves his rugby league, plays rugby union, but, and at first I was a bit like, 
oh, do you have to play union? What about rugby league? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but all these mates from school play. Gotcha. And uh, like they weren't tackling last year in union and it was a bit painful to watch, to be honest, even though I love It's you know, so painful to watch kids uh, <laughs> And they sort of would run from one side of the field to the other, to the back, other side, to the other side, and then just Just following the, the balls yep. around. <laughs> yeah. I said to my dad, oh, I don't know what to do, eh? Like keep telling my son, Ted, um, uh, what uh, – Keep trying to get him to play rugby league, but he won't. All his mates at school playing rugby union. And dad goes, well, you could just change schools for him, couldn't you? Get new mates. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm not that desperate. <laughs> but uh, this year they've been tackling and, and I've been enjoying watching him play. But talking about mimicking players, he'll kick the footy in the backyard by himself sometimes and I'll be like getting something from the kitchen and the window looks out of the backyard there and so I can hear him. And I can hear like some voices talking. And I'm like, has he got a mate from like next door or something in the backyard? I go to the back deck to sort of spy on him and watch and he's commentating himself. And he's oh, going, my goodness. Shillington, Shillington kicks it, Shillington scores. And then uh, next minute he'll score a try. And like so cute. Take a knee and do these like uh, rabbit ears or something that uh, Luttrell Mitchell from the um, <laughs> Rabbitohs does when he scores a try. He, he <laughs> drops to a knee and goes like this. I think it's a rabbit, I don't know. And uh, so my son will score a try and go, Shillington scores, then drop to a knee and go like this. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> That's so, amazing. So yeah, I see it firsthand now, I guess, that impact that um, whatever they do on the field happens in junior sport. So if you ever see – because, you know, when you're in it, you're like, oh, I'm not a role model. But yeah. do you – does it then upset you if the, you know, current role models mm. do something where you're like, oh, God, I have to explain to my kid that that's not okay? Yeah, yeah, it does. But, and I certainly don't try and exonerate people of their responsibilities. But I, I do know, look, we all make mistakes. Oh, oh absolutely. You've got to also, as a person viewing these mistakes, you've got to have, uh, I guess, be in touch with reality what really is a big deal what really is super important what's just like a bit unsavory a lot of the things we see in the papers about players doing the wrong thing is just i would term unsavory Mm. uh, not so much a big drama Uh, of course you know some big things do happen from time to time and and that's not good based on what we're just talking about but uh like i I certainly wasn't a perfect uh, player or person when when i played in the nrl the whole time i made mistakes for sure and what's tough with that, and speaking in a candid way, is uh, everything's captured on camera yeah. uh, or in the newspapers reported on. And so now my kids are getting a bit older. Oh, God. Um, <gasps> oh, no. Are they Googling you? Yeah, they can see oh, these no. things. <laughs> oh, what a nightmare. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> and so uh, we de- we generally have like a ban on YouTube at home Yeah, uh, because all random things pop up on there. And, yeah, I totally uh, agree. Yeah. But the exception to bands on YouTube is they can watch fishing videos or footy videos, right? Is that just because that's what you want to watch? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very convenient parenting. But so, but whereas the problem is uh, my son was Googling highlights from my career and in my 200th NRL game, I actually got sent off for headbutting. <laughs> and when I, say, when I say headbutting, I don't mean like, you know, ones for warriors sort of things. I mean like I just gave him a little love tap really. I just, just touched him. And uh, I got sent off and my son Googled that and saw it. He was like, oh, my God, you headbutted someone. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's laughing. He thought it was hilarious. But I was like to him and my daughter, I said, I got this like real serious look on my face. I was like, okay, guys, now listen very carefully. That was a long time ago when rules were a bit more relaxed and things were a bit more always easy going. You kind of get away with that stuff. It was definitely frowned upon, but you kind of get away with it. It was part of the game. You definitely can't do that today. All right. And I regret doing it. Absolutely. 
You can't do it. If you guys did it in junior sport or at school or anything, you guys would be in so much trouble. It's not mm. funny. It's not okay to do. And I got this real serious like. <laughs> yeah, to be an adult. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, at the time, once again, it was just all a part of it. That must be so weird. Because <laughs> the, the thing with swimming is it's like, it's only really interesting once every four years. Whereas you guys are literally captured all year round yeah. for years and years on end. Yeah, someone, uh, Wazi, spoke about rugby league a while back saying it's like the ultimate in that it's this like gladiator sport where people can't believe what's happening out there. Mm. It's so entertaining. But it's also like this ultimate reality TV show too yes. where it's just this constant off-field things going on, whether it's a player well, misbehaving it's, yeah, or a but, contract drama. Or, but it's like the media are looking as well. They like are. they're looking to catch people out. Yeah, yeah. Well, journalists – as most people know, they write to their audience essentially. They're not mm. just necessarily writing an article, but they want to speak to their audience. Mm. So like a Paul Kent, for example, that writes for telly, um, his million people in Western Sydney, his readership, some of them have been battlers, you know, and, and life's hard. So he'll write an article about a player that um, takes his million-dollar contract for granted and uh, he shouldn't, you know. So his readership to her battlers, they'll go, oh, yeah, that's right, gets paid a million dollars, he should cherish this, you know, yeah. which is true. But There's always context. And yeah, the journalists do write for their readers for mm. sure because that's how they maintain relevance, of course. So I'm conscious that you're about to head off to give another presentation. Yep. I have two final questions that I like to ask everybody who comes on the podcast. Number one... What is the moment in your playing career that you are most proud of? And I want to give the context of maybe not something that everybody would know about. So maybe not a premiership win or, you know, state of origin win, whatever it might be. It's one of those really quiet moments where you're like, gosh, I'm just so proud of myself. That's Mm. amazing. Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, Yeah, as you just suggested, there's some really obvious ones Mm. of like achievement. And getting things like, you know, the Players' Player Awards for the Queensland Maroons and the winning series, you sort of naturally think about that. But to more answer your question in the right context, I think um, broadly speaking, any time I had to come back from injury and surgery, uh, which was multiple times, so it's not particularly one moment, uh, but there was times where you'd be sidelined for four to six months or even just four to six weeks mid-season and you lose all your match fitness and all your confidence. All your momentum. It's not just the worrying when you come back about will your injury hold up? Mm. It's also will your ability hold up like that? And in in that time, there might have been other players that were playing in your position that played well and you've got this competition that snuck up. You might be fighting against other players and other teams that were trying to get your origin spot, for example. Mm. So the amount of sort of vulnerability, volatility you feel coming back from injury is is enormous. Mm. The final question I like to ask people is what would your advice be for someone who is either just recently retired or thinking about retirement? I think finding what your passions and your values are and and trying to structure the direction of your life and the routine of your life, I Mm. guess, around that. Like you did, uh, I tried a couple of different things when I retired. Uh, I always had one foot in the mental health space where I always worked either full-time or or part-time with the NRL delivering their community-based mental health problem. Uh, program. <laughs> I didn't cause the problem. <laughs> it wasn't me. It was just in general. Yeah. So I always had one foot in the mental health space at least, but I did toy with um, the corporate space mm. and tried a couple of different you know, executive roles there and had this sort of vision around it. 
but they were with organizations or in roles that I wasn't really passionate about, didn't mm. really care about as much as I should have. And so as a result, motivation, confidence. It's just um, not there. Yeah, it's just definitely not there. But then when I was like, well, I need to turn this passion more into like my day-to-day stuff and uh, whether that was working full-time with the NRL doing that or starting my own business. So being a mental health first aid instructor was the foundations for starting my own business. So I could mm. deliver that widely. Uh, but then I've just found so much enjoyment around talking to the public, trialing things, collaborating with other people to develop products and services that I know are making a big impact that people mm. really want to do, uh, helping people build their mental fitness. And so for me, that is so rewarding every single day. And I don't say that in like a disingenuous way or anything like that. Like genuinely, I, like I, I thrive off it. So I, I would say to people, just you know, find your passions, your values, and try and uh, construct your daily routine, your weekly routine, maybe your work life too, uh, that feeds into those things because, yeah, it's it's so rewarding and energising. And that's, you know, you have the rest of your life to live. There's so much life to give and energy to give. You want to be doing something or spending your time doing something you're passionate about. That's right. Yeah, you could be 18 or, or 22 and you know, looking what to do full time and you're going to do this for another 40 years, yeah. maybe more, right? Or you could be... 30 or 50 years old and do this for another 10, 20, 30 years. Mm. So look, even if you do it for a week, uh, you want to be enjoying it. And probably just you know, adding one more on it, you know, do it with, surround yourself with people that, that you enjoy being around as well. It's nothing better than feeding off people who are not so much like-minded, but maybe similar values and mm. um, interests and vision on life maybe. And so um, obviously that's why podcasts are great for you. You yeah. talk to all these wonderfully fascinating people. More fascinating than me. Uh, but, uh, Obviously you. Yeah, fuel your life and your mood that way by being deliberate on what you do and who you hang out with mm. and, and how you construct your life. It's been such a pleasure to be able to chat to you, Dave. I, I, I love spending time with you Thank and you, you all too. the work that we get to do together. I will have all the links to your things, all your businesses that you do and all the opportunities to work with you. Yeah. So that'll be in the show notes, everybody. But yeah, thank you so much for your time today. Likewise, pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining me on today's chat with Dave. I love the work that Dave does, especially around mental fitness. He just is able to articulate things in a really succinct and kind of effective way around that kind of mental health, mental fitness conversation and yeah he is full of incredible stories and anecdotes around his experiences through his footy career and yeah that's something that I absolutely love being an NRL fan from way back but um yeah if you want to hear more about what Dave is up to as, as I mentioned all the links are in the show notes if you have any recommendations over um, people that you want me to chat to, we have a number of really exciting guests in the works, so we can't wait to share them with you over the next couple of weeks. Uh, check out at All That Glitters Pod, slide into my DMs for any ideas, and otherwise, have a great couple of weeks. See you soon.